We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, Dignity. What happens to the dignity of man in wartime? Kind of gets left by the wayside along with not just the dignity of humanity, but actual bodies. It was the summer of 2014 when the state of Israel launched its Operation Protective Edge on the Palestinian Gaza Strip. It was a 51-day attack which killed more than 2,200 Palestinians and devastated its infrastructure. I believe about 77 Israelis lost their lives as well. One year later, what was accomplished? Did the action result in increased security for Israel? What was the effect on any war against terrorism? How has future terrorism been affected? Has either side accepted responsibility for any atrocities and war crimes which may have been committed? Very pleased uh, to have with us in Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today is going to talk about what it meant and where we are today. Josh Rubner, National Advocacy Director of the U.S. Campaign to End the Israeli Occupation. Josh, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Bert. Well, thanks again. And uh, he is a former analyst in Middle East Affairs at Congressional Research Service. And he's the author of Shattered Hopes, Obama's Failure to Broker Israeli-Palestinian Peace, which is published by Verso Books. Again, thanks for being with us. Please just briefly refresh our memories. It was called Operation Protective Edge. What, what led to the war? What started the bang-bang that was involved? Right. Well, before getting into the specifics of Israel's attack on the Gaza Strip last summer, I think it's important to contextualize this issue uh, to let your listeners know what is the Gaza Strip, who lives there, uh, what is its status under international law, if I may. Uh, The Gaza Strip is a very, very tiny portion of historic Palestine. Uh, You can run a marathon from the north tip to the south tip, uh, and the width is only a few miles wide. So basically, we're talking about an area of land that's roughly twice the size of Washington, D.C. And within the Gaza Strip, there are now 1.8 million Palestinians packed into this tiny, tiny piece of land. The question is, how did so many Palestinians get to be in the Gaza Strip, and why is it so overpopulated today? Mm -hmm. One thing that almost never comes up in discussions of the Gaza Strip is that 80% 
of the Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip are not actually originally from the Gaza Strip. They're from communities, villages, towns, and cities in what is today, present-day Israel. Hmm. And they were ethnically cleansed, expelled from their homes in 1948 when Israel was created and herded into this tiny little strip of land known as the Gaza Strip. So that's the situation uh, that obtained from 1948 up until 1967 when Israel conquered the Gaza Strip along with the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Syrian Golan Heights, and the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula. Since that time, 48 years ago, Israel has held the Gaza Strip under what's called belligerent military occupation Hmm. in international law. Hmm. Ten years ago, Israel unilaterally withdrew its settlers who had set up illegal colonies within the Gaza Strip, and it also withdrew its military bases from inside the Gaza Strip. And Israel claimed that because of these actions, it no longer occupied the Palestinian Gaza Strip. But in reality, as we've seen, especially over the past seven years, as Israel has implemented this incredibly uh, tightly, hermetically sealed blockade on the Gaza Strip by land, by sea, and by air, Israel still controls and dominates this territory from without, and under international law is still the occupying power. So Gaza remains under blockade and under Israeli military occupation, uh, and that continues today. This brings us more up to the the present day and provides some context for what happened last year. And it is important Mm -hmm. to to know what history is. And I've I've heard it called the the world's largest open-air prison. Does, Does that kind of fit what it is? Uh, It's very much an open-air prison in in the sense that Palestinians who live under Israeli military blockade and occupation in the Gaza Strip do not have freedom of movement. They cannot travel to the West Bank. They cannot travel to Jerusalem. They cannot leave the Gaza Strip through Egypt to go abroad for any purpose whatsoever Mm. without permission. And these permits are almost never granted. So for the vast majority of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, some 99.9% of Palestinians, I would say, they are trapped uh, in the Gaza Strip with nowhere to go, uh, living under blockade. So yes, it is like an open-air prison, with Israel controlling uh, the, the entrance and exit points, along with Egypt as well, deciding who can come in, who can go out, and what materials can come in and what can be exported. So, yes, Israel controls every facet of life from without in the Palestinian Gaza Strip. They even control the population registry, uh, Hmm. maintaining control over things like birth certificates and death certificates and stuff like that. That's just an example of the degree to which Israel maintains hegemony over Palestinian lives, not only in the Gaza Strip, but under occupation in the West Bank as well. Now, now you so said... The attack last summer on the Gaza sure. Strip was okay. actually the third major Israeli attack on the Gaza Strip uh, since President Obama took office. There was one in 2008-2009, another one in 2012, and the one you mentioned last summer. And altogether, these attacks have murdered nearly 4,000 Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, the vast majority of whom uh, were civilians. 
couple of questions, Josh. There is the West Bank as well. Isn't that more spacious? Why is it that, that Gaza is so crowded and people did not uh, live in the West Bank area, which is also uh, occupied, I believe? Yes, that's an interesting question. And in fact, under the Bush administration, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice actually negotiated an agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. It was called the Agreement on Movement and Access, which was supposed to allow Palestinians in the Gaza Strip to do just that, to live, to work in the occupied Palestinian West Bank. But despite signing this agreement, this is something that Israel has never implemented. Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, for the most part, are not able to travel, uh, work, or live in the Palestinian West Bank, even though we're only talking about a distance of some 20 miles away, Mm. roughly. Uh, And so, yes, it's true that the West Bank is... Uh, larger geographically, yeah. uh, taken together, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are about uh, 22% of historic Palestine. Uh, and I'd say the West Bank is, is roughly uh, at, least, at least five times larger. Uh, it does have a greater population, although not by much, even though it has more land. But it's simply impossible right, for Palestinians from the Gaza Strip to migrate to the West Bank. So in that war, which started in July of 2014, something like 2,200 Palestinians were killed. Do we know how many of those were were civilians, how many children died? Do we have numbers for those seriously injured? And how many Palestinians were displaced? Do we know how many homes and businesses destroyed? And, and, uh, and then I just wanted to ask, what about casualties among Israelis? Yes. Uh, according to all the reports by both the United Nations and Palestinian and Israeli human rights organizations, at least two-thirds of the people who were killed by Israel were confirmed to be civilians. Probably a much higher number were actually civilians, but we'll never know definitively. So the vast majority of people, by any measure, uh, were civilians who did not participate in any hostilities against Israel. There were many tens of thousands injured, uh, thousands permanently uh, disabled, probably maimed for life. Yeah. There were more than 550 Palestinian children under the age of 18 who were killed in this attack, uh, oftentimes as the result of either deliberate attacks targeting their homes uh, or indiscriminate or disproportionate uh, uses of force by the Israeli military. This is something that's been documented by the organization Defense for Children International Palestine, uh, where they provide dozens of examples of uh, U.S.-supplied F-16 fighter jets, Apache helicopter gunships, uh, raining down Hellfire missiles indiscriminately, uh, killing children, often uh, several children from one family Mm. at a time. Mm. Uh, Many Palestinians were displaced uh, in this attack. Uh, It's estimated that Israel either demolished or destroyed 100,000 Palestinian homes. And today I believe the figure is 160,000 Palestinians in the Gaza uh, Gaza Strip still remain uh, internally displaced, unable to reconstruct their homes because of Israel's blockade on the Gaza Strip, which prohibits them from importing things like concrete and rebar and Mm -hmm. things that you would need to rebuild your destroyed home. 
Now, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Josh Rubner. With he was na- he is National Advocacy Director for the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation. We're talking about one year after the 2014 summer war uh, on uh, on Gaza, on the Gaza Strip. Now, uh, Israel was under attack from rockets, which largely came from the Gaza Strip. There were tunnels, a lot of tunnels, apparently, from Egypt into the Gaza Strip. Now, these tunnels were said to have enabled terrorist attacks inside Israel. Were those not legitimate military targets for Israel to defend itself? Well, in the, in the sense that there are Palestinian armed groups that engage in armed hostilities, it's, of course, uh, legitimate to counter uh, military efforts with similar military efforts. And, yes, it's true that there, are, uh, there were and there probably still are tunnels both uh, within the Gaza Strip and between the Gaza Strip and Egypt. Now, these tunnels are used for two purposes. One is to try to circumvent uh, Israel's illegal blockade of the Gaza Strip and make sure that the civilian population of Gaza is able to import the essentials of life in order to uh, eat and drink uh, under this very tightly uh, sealed blockade. Uh, And also it was revealed, and this was a surprise to the Israeli military and intelligence services in last year's war, that Hamas, one of the armed Palestinian groups in the Gaza Strip, uh, had dug a very sophisticated system of tunnels for use for military purposes. There's no proof uh, that these tunnels were for the purpose of engaging in attacks against Israeli civilians. They were used during this attack uh, on Gaza for military purposes, for legitimate military operations against invading Israeli soldiers. And you asked earlier about Israeli casualties. Right, thank you. I believe that of the 77 uh, Israelis who were killed in this attack, I think the number was 72 of them who were soldiers who had invaded the Gaza Strip uh, and were killed in action. Now, these are not terrorist attacks. This is part of a military uh, operation. And under international law, people have a right to defend themselves militarily against military aggression, uh, which is what these tunnels were evidently for. And I have to ask, those rocket attacks, which Israel talked about quite a bit, in the past year since that war, have, has, has it been effective? Did it stop the rocket attacks on Israel? Uh, for, for the most part, the rocket attacks have gone down quite significantly. This hasn't stopped Israel from continuing to attack the Gaza Strip on a regular basis. Uh, in fact, fishermen in the Gaza Strip are regularly attacked by the Israeli Navy. The Israeli military frequently does uh, short-term incursions across the fence into the Gaza Strip for military purposes. Uh, all of these things rarely go reported in the uh, U.S. media, but what does get reported is when Hamas or other groups fire these rockets or mortars uh, at Israeli civilian population centers. And let me be very clear, our organization, we support human rights, we support international law. Uh, We believe that it's illegal under international law for militant groups to fire rockets or other projectiles at civilian 
centers, and that's a war crime. And as we condemn Israel's deliberate targeting of Palestinian civilians and civilian infrastructure, we do the same when it comes to any Palestinian uh, attacks against Israel. But these rockets and mortars that the Palestinian uh, groups have at their disposal uh, are no match for the sophisticated arsenal of U.S. weapons uh, in, at Israel's disposal. Israel has the most sophisticated, most advanced, precision-guided munitions uh, available to the U.S. military that Israel gets as part of the more than $3 billion in weapons that we give as military aid every year. Mm. The weapons at the disposal of Palestinian groups are uh, largely without ordinance in them, largely inaccurate, uh, largely incapable of inflicting much harm at all. Sometimes they do do damage. Uh, occasionally they injure and, and even kill Israeli civilians, but to compare these very crude uh, rockets and mortars at their disposal to the JDAMs and the Hellfire missiles and the Sidewinder missiles uh, in Israel's arsenal, uh, it's night and day. Yeah, and I want to definitely get to that and what the, what the U.S. Uh, responsibility may be. I'm just remembering you talked a bit about the, the mainstream media, and I remember watching it uh, last summer, and it, it was, you know, pretty... Uh, some TV, I'll tell you. I remember watching the network news one night, and there was an on-the-scene report in Gaza showing Palestinians taking shelter, Palestinian families taking shelter in a school. And the very next day, that school was bombed from the air, and lots of people were killed. Is there any evidence, do you know of, of shelters being specifically intentionally targeted and is that not a, a war crime? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, this report I mentioned earlier from Defense for Children International Palestine actually goes into quite some detail about not just one incident of Israel deliberately shelling and targeting uh, UN shelters, but it actually happened on three occasions. And on each occasion, the UN had communicated to the Israeli military the exact GPS coordinates right. of these shelters dozens of times, and Israel still shelled them, killing innocent children and civilians on each occasion. This actually made the United States incredibly angry the third time it happened. Uh, and for a moment, it appeared that the Obama administration would actually take action and halt the delivery of these Hellfire missiles to the Israeli military as a consequence for their deliberate targeting of civilian shelters. But unfortunately, uh, that was a very short-lived and, and a decision which was overturned a few days later, to the best of our understanding. Mm. And again, our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Josh Rubner, and he's uh, author of Shattered Hopes, Obama's Failure to Broker Israeli-Palestinian Peace. And, you know, one year later, what about responsibility? I want to look at taking responsibility and doing something about the damage that was caused. Do civilian courts in Israel have any responsibility to investigate and press charges when appropriate for allegations of war crimes? I don't know if civilian courts have any uh, jurisdiction over military actions. Has either side in this war 
seriously looked into responsibility for any atrocities committed. Right. Civilian courts, no. But the Israeli military has opened up investigations into, I would guess, a couple dozen uh, different specific incidents. And this is sort of the standard uh, MO, the modus operandi of the Israeli military, that when the international community, when human rights organizations are documenting and demanding accountability for clear war crimes, like the deliberate targeting of UN shelters, uh, Israel will go through the motions of an investigation into these matters and almost inevitably uh, conclude mm-hmm. that nothing was done inappropriately. So, for example, during the attack on Gaza last summer, you had the horrific killing of the four backer cousins on the beach of Gaza City as they played soccer. And this was done in full view of international journalists who had camped out in a hotel or a restaurant just a few meters away from where these four children uh, were killed playing soccer. Now, Israel launched an investigation into this incident and a couple months ago concluded that absolutely nothing was done wrong. So you have a situation where Israel uh, goes through the motions of investigating itself but never holding itself accountable. In fact, only one soldier so far has been held accountable for his actions, and that was for stealing a credit card, which is a serious war crime and a serious concern. But when you're talking about the devastation of uh, entire neighborhoods, uh, when you're talking about the killing of entire families, I mean, it really pales in comparison in terms of the scope of the crime. And due to this lack of uh, accountability within Israel, there have been calls for uh, international accountability. There is a report that has been submitted to the UN Human Rights Council documenting Uh, the actions of both Israel and Palestinian armed groups in last summer's attack, uh, and calling for international mechanisms to hold Israel accountable. And indeed, there may come a time when Israel is held accountable in international arenas, because earlier this year, uh, the state of Palestine, which is recognized by the UN as a member state, uh, acceded to the International Criminal Court and is able to bring uh, complaints against uh, Israel in the International Criminal Court. So there, the International Criminal Court is currently going through deliberations, looking into these files, uh, and it may be that in a few years uh, Israel is held accountable uh, in this venue, although I think it's uh, a long shot because of the pressure uh, that the United States has brought to bear on the ICC and will bring to bear on the ICC to make sure that Israel is not held accountable there. Yeah, and as you talk about, uh, oh, the fox investigating the uh, hen house, you know, we see that a lot here when there's uh, police abuse in the United States, when they investigate it. Well, golly gee, the police didn't do anything wrong. That uh, doesn't, you know, that's pretty much, as you say, the modus operandi. Now, with regard to the bringing the case before the International Criminal Court in The Hague, one would think that if Israel was so confident it had not committed any indictable crimes, frankly, it would welcome an ICC inquiry to to clear its name. I take it that has not been the case. No, definitely not. And in fact, Israel has been extremely worried by the Palestinians turning to the ICC. 
Uh, and you know, this is something that I document in my book, how the Obama administration, in conjunction with Israel, leveraged tremendous pressure uh, against the Palestinians not to pursue international accountability uh, in the case of the 2008-2009 attack on Gaza. Uh, and the U.S. has been very, very open in backing Israel's demand that Palestinians don't go to the ICC to pursue justice uh, because the, the United States and Israel portray the international community as inherently biased against Israel, uh, even sometimes claiming that its institutions are anti-Semitic, uh, all because these international institutions want to hold Israel to the same exact standard of other countries when it comes to their conduct uh, in, in uh, military affairs and in international law. And it's the United States, by backing Israel and Israeli exceptionalism, mm -hmm. uh, which is preventing Israel from being held uh, in a manner that's similar to every other potential country in the world when it comes to these type of actions. So the impunity uh, that has characterized Israel's policies toward the Palestinians is something that's backed by U.S. diplomatic support, and it's something that has really persisted not only in the case of Gaza over the last seven or eight years, but also for the whole entire history of Israel's uh, oppression of the Palestinians over the past six decades. And during America's war in Vietnam, uh, there were many atrocities committed. Of course, we the one we everybody knows about it, the My Lai Massacre, but there were others. And some soldiers actually were charged with atrocities. Now, allegedly, they acted on their own, and to greater or lesser degrees, they got some degree of uh, a punishment. Is it known whether any Israeli soldiers acted on their own in committing atrocities, or is it more likely frankly, as with Vietnam, that maybe it was uh, just part of policy. What do we know about that since the war last summer? Well, there, there's another excellent human rights report that came out from the Israeli organization Breaking the Silence. And what they did was they collected testimony from Israeli soldiers who actually participated in this attack on Gaza. And if you read this report, it's very clear that the orders, the directives, the rules of engagement came from the very top of the echelons of Israel's military establishment. In other words, the Israeli military was saying that the rules of engagement in this attack are lax. You have permission to fire at anything, at any time, for any reason, and there was a presumption that any Palestinian encountered by Israeli soldiers was a combatant. This flips international law on its head, because under international law, you have to presume that someone is a civilian until that person uh, presents him or herself otherwise as a combatant. And so this presumption that Israeli soldiers were told uh, to go into the Gaza Strip with to treat everyone as a hostile combatant, was clearly uh, illegal under international law. Uh, you clearly have directives going down to the soldiers at the rank and file saying, destroy everything, demolish this neighborhood, regardless of whether there's a military advantage to be gained. The point of this attack was to demolish the Gaza Strip, to make it even more uninhabitable uh, for the civilian population of Gaza. And this is all documented very clearly in this breaking the silence 
report. And the notion that there are just a few bad apples out there, that it's the culpability of individual soldiers not acting on orders uh, is meant to obfuscate the reality that this was the actual intended policy of the state of Israel in attacking Gaza. And it does remind me of the winter soldier hearings here uh, among American soldiers who had seen the vastness of the atrocities that had happened in the same kind of situation. It was blamed on a few bad apples. And these were soldiers who very much like the breaking the silence felt some pangs of conscience and, and had to speak out about it. And these were very brave, heroic uh, Americans who spoke out, and I'm sure it wasn't easy for the Israeli soldiers to speak out as well. Now, You're absolutely right, and I'm reminded that our current Secretary of State, John Kerry, testified in those Winter Soldier right. hearings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, John Kerry, as Secretary of State, uh, has completely forgotten the lessons of John Kerry, the anti-war yes. activist <laughs> from the Vietnam War, because during Israel's attack on Gaza, he actually justified it as, quote, legitimate and appropriate. I was a John Kerry supporter in 2004, I will uh, acknowledge, and I thought I was supporting the John Kerry that I knew from 1971. <laughs> I wasn't, apparently. Yeah. Uh, oh, well. Now, we've talked, of course, about the incredible closeness, the special bond between the United States and the state of Israel. The government of the U.S. has always had exceptionally close relations with the government of the state of Israel. I wonder if you could go into some degree of detail about American military equipment that was used in Operation Protective Edge and how one year later maybe maybe somebody should be uh, looking into that. And maybe, I guess the U.N., some aspects of the U.N. may be looking at that. But, but what about American military equipment that was used against the uh, Gaza Strip? We, as the United States, flood Israel, inundate Israel with weaponry. We give Israel more than $3 billion of military aid every year. Israel actually gets more U.S. military aid than all other countries, foreign countries combined. Israel gets about 55% of all U.S. military aid. And so even though Israel is a wealthy country with a per capita GDP that's higher than Spain, higher than Portugal, higher than Saudi Arabia, higher even than South Korea, Israel still gets a massive amount of U.S. taxpayer money to finance its military. And in fact, we underwrite, we finance about one out of every five dollars that Israel spends on its military. And so the amount of weaponry that this annual aid buys is staggering. It amounts to literally hundreds of millions of weapons and pieces of ammunition over the course of a decade. And so it is inconceivable with Israel getting literally hundreds of different types of U.S. weapons that the Israeli military can do anything without these U.S. weapons, which are paid for by us as taxpayers. Mm. So as I mentioned earlier, the Defense for Children International report documents how F-16 fighter jets were used to demolish entire Palestinian homes, kill entire Palestinian families. The same thing with Apache helicopter gunships and the Hellfire missiles that are fired from them. In this report that I mentioned from Breaking the Silence, the Israeli soldiers' testimony, Mm -hmm. they testify repeatedly about how Caterpillar D-9 bulldozers 
were used to demolish entire neighborhoods of Palestinian civilian homes. So U.S. weapons uh, were implicated uh, in every possible way in this attack on the Gaza Strip. And what concerns our organization especially is that these U.S. weapons are paid for by U.S. taxpayers and used to commit these atrocious human rights abuses and even war crimes against Palestinians. And we actually have laws on the books in the United States which are supposed to prevent U.S. weapons from being used in this fashion, and yet still the United States has zero concern for holding Israel accountable to these laws. The U.S. Arms Export Control Act says that a foreign country can only use U.S. weapons for, quote, legitimate self-defense or for internal security. Now, bombing a foreign occupied territory uh, and deliberately targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure is not internal security and it's not legitimate self-defense. Yet, as far as we know, the Obama administration and Congress have done absolutely nothing to hold Israel accountable for violating this law. Fascinating to have that law. Was there some uh, Leahy law? Uh, uh, Senator Leahy from Vermont, was he part of that? There's also the Leahy law, yes, which is separate from the Export Control Act. The Leahy law uh, targets particular units of a military that have been implicated in the commission of grave human rights abuses. And the Leahy law cuts off U.S. aid and training to these particular units, and any individuals connected to these human rights abuses are prevented from acquiring U.S. visas to come to the United States. So that's a separate law. Uh There's been, again, no accountability under that law either, as far as we know. And I can imagine that those laws certainly could be enforced. There's no reason they're not enforced except for, dare I suggest, politics. (laughs) Do the Palestinians, the people of the Gaza Strip, the Palestinians all over, do they know the extent of U.S. military support for the Israeli operation? Specifically, what is known about the effects of last summer's war on the Palestinians' attitude toward the U.S. government? Well, I think Palestinians understand quite well that most of the weaponry uh, unleashed against them is courtesy of the United States. When you have fragments of missile shells and, and bombs and so forth detonating in a civilian population, and they're literally stamped made in the USA, and they tell you the state that it was manufactured in and it has other U.S. markings on them, how can Palestinians not know that the United States is providing Israel with these weapons to kill them. And this goes to a concern that not only Palestinians have, but uh, Arabs in general, Muslims in general, most people around the world are concerned that the United States is actively and directly enabling Israel's oppression and human rights abuses against the Palestinian people. So the whole world understands that this is what's going on, Uh, But our politicians want to keep this military aid flowing for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's obviously a very strong and influential Israel lobby which advocates for this military aid. And number two, most of this military aid that goes to Israel gets reinvested into U.S. military uh, and, and weapons makers. So it's a boon to these corporate interests as well 
which in turn provide more money to the politicians to keep this policy going. So it's really a self-perpetuating machine that's been created. This policy of providing Israel with billions and billions of dollars of weapons every year is on autopilot. And in fact, President Obama is actually negotiating an agreement with Israel right now to give it $40 billion of more weapons all the way to 2028. Isn't that special? So we give them money. They give, they buy stuff from American uh, weapons manufacturers, uh, and it's just such a cool cycle. Boy, that's really swell. <laughs> just, that's amazing. And our tax dollars are just feeding the whole thing. And APAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, I think, without a doubt, one of the most powerful lobbies in Washington. Uh, it, they're, let's face it, they're behind it. Now, since the war, ha- has not has the U.S. well? How how has the Gaza Strip been rebuilt? Describe the level of aid uh, from Israel. Was it weren't they supposed to help rebuild uh, the area they destroyed? And what about U.S. aid to the Palestinian Authority since the war? I know that there's Hamas on uh, you know in the Gaza. And there's the Palestinian Authority under Mahmoud Abbas, uh, pretty much in the West Bank. But is the is the uh, Gaza Strip being rebuilt either by Israelis or is the U.S. helping them rebuild? What do we know about that? Uh, Israel is definitely not helping with the reconstruction. In fact, it's hindering the reconstruction. So after the ceasefire that ended the attack. Uh, John Kerry put together an international conference in Cairo of donor countries to pledge to rebuild the Gaza Strip. And the international community raised, I think it was $4.5 billion for that purpose, which is estimated to be about half of the damage that Israel did to the civilian infrastructure of the Gaza Strip. And of this $4.5 billion, uh, very, very few of the countries which pledged this money actually ponied up the money. And of the money that was actually donated to reconstruct Gaza, because Israel's blockade uh, and Egypt's blockade of the Gaza Strip has only intensified uh, over the past year, it's been virtually impossible to get this reconstruction aid into the Gaza Strip. So Mm -hmm. not a single home that has been destroyed by Israel has been rebuilt in the ensuing year. So very, very little is coming in. What is, go- what is getting in is emergency food aid, which 80% of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip are now dependent on because of uh, Israel's blockade. So Palestinians in the Gaza Strip are basically being kept on life support, being provided with just enough food to keep them above starvation levels, Mm. but no reconstruction, no economic development, no opportunities to freely import and export goods and have a functioning economy. So now you have a situation in the Gaza Strip where the unemployment rate is above 40%. Mm. It's the highest unemployment rate in the world. And that's not because Palestinians uh, aren't uh, good at business uh, and don't have a functioning economy. It's because Israel through its policies of blockading the Gaza Strip, has deliberately de-developed and destroyed the Palestinian economy there. Now, I have heard stories that some people have said that that 
Israelis have actually gone in and tried to rebuild certain areas, but that Hamas and perhaps other groups have have destroyed it uh, as quickly as it gets built. Have you heard any stories like that? Well, I think you might be referring to what happened after Israel's unilateral disengagement from the Gaza Strip, which was in August of 2005, 10 years ago. This was when Israel removed its settlers from within the Gaza Strip, removed its military bases uh, from within the Gaza Strip. Uh, And it is true that Palestinians uh, destroyed the infrastructure of these illegal settlements, which had been created uh, in the Gaza Strip, because they had no use for them. They didn't fit the pattern of Palestinian housing. They didn't fit the pattern of Palestinian uh, economic development, and they served no purpose. So those structures, those uh, infrastructures, were indeed demolished when Israel uh, left the Gaza Strip. But... uh, Israel uh, has not engaged in any development projects uh, within the Gaza Strip for the benefit of Palestinians. And actually, under international law, the occupying power, which is Israel, is legally obligated to provide for all of the necessities of life of the population uh, under occupation. This means health, welfare, education, uh, infrastructure, social services, and so forth. Mm -hmm. All of this is mandated uh, to be provided by the occupying power under international law. But what Israel has done such a great job of is convincing the international community to pick up the tab, to have the Gaza Strip and the people who live there become a ward of the international community as Israel de-develops the economy and destroys its civilian infrastructure, even though Israel has the legal obligation under international law to be providing for the needs of Gaza's residents directly. Mm. How convenient. Now, politically, how has that war, since the war happened, affected the two competing entities in Palestine? There's Hamas and the Palestinian Authority of Mahmoud Abbas. Has it strengthened one at the expense of the other? And, and certainly, you know, the U.S. Uh, has seen Hamas as, as the bad guys and the, the Palestinian Authority as the people we want to support. What, what has happened with regard to those two competing uh, political entities? Basically, the situation that existed before the attack is the same situation that exists today. There's a lot of spaces within Palestinian politics. There were uh, attempts uh, after the attack to reconcile uh, Hamas and uh, PLO, Fatah, uh, which is led by Mahmoud Abbas, as you mentioned. There were attempts to create a national unity government, uh, to have one combined administration Uh, with mm -hmm. the Palestinian Authority being responsible for both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Uh, those agreements, those discussions went nowhere. They, they weren't implemented. There were uh, calls for new Palestinian actions to be held. That didn't go anywhere. Uh, the, the whole system is just stuck right now. And the, the notion that Palestinians can have a functioning government under these conditions of Israeli military occupation and blockade is, I think, part of the problem because Israel, again, has done an excellent job of portraying to the international community that Palestinians are self-governing, that they have a president, that they have a parliament, and they do have both. The problem is that neither of these institutions have any sovereignty, have any actual powers. They're operating a government that's under the total control and domination 
of Israel's military occupation. So the notion that you can have some kind of, uh, you know, Palestinian political program and political vision that's implemented by elected Palestinian officials and political parties, you know, it's just not, it's not workable in a situation where Israel dominates the landscape 100% completely and determines Palestinians' lives. And I'm remembering also watching the news in the uh, summer of 2014 and seeing an 11-year-old boy who, whose family members were killed, and he said from this point on he was going to devote his life uh, to fighting back, to destroying Israel, to probably becoming a suicide bomber. Before the action by Israel, would he have done that? I don't know. I don't know if it, <laughs> how it could have increased security. And there was that wonderful movie about Vietnam called Hearts and Minds, and it's about hearts and minds. If you don't have the hearts and minds of the people, you're not going to win. It's just not going to happen. And I, I just I can't imagine how uh, the war of uh, the summer of 2014 could have won any more hearts and minds of, of Palestinians. And there was, the, there was a quote here... Um, let me just see what it is here that, uh, oh, yes, the, the U.N. has noted, quote, the extent of the devastation and human suffering in Gaza was unprecedented and will impact generations to come. In, in what ways will, will it affect generations to come? What, what did the U.N. mean by that? Well, all Palestinians in the Gaza Strip suffered significant uh, emotional trauma from this attack. Many suffered physical trauma as well. Uh, those will be debilitating uh, emotional and physical scars, I agree, not only for this generation, but for upcoming generations as well. The way I see it is that Israel has trapped itself into an ideological box of its own construction. Mm. Israel refuses to come to terms with the fact that its colonization project did not eliminate the indigenous population. Hmm. Despite all the oppression, despite all the attacks, despite all the killings, uh, there are still a Palestinian people who remain not only on their historic land, but scattered throughout the world uh, in refugee communities who want to return to their homeland. And so Israel has yet to reconcile with the fact that even today, for every Israeli Jew, there are two Palestinians. And so how long can the system of apartheid be maintained where Israel, acting on behalf of a minority, exercises perpetual domination and control over the indigenous majority? How long could it possibly have lasted in South Africa? Right. Uh, what we're seeing today, I think, is the, the last phase the last historical era in which Israel is capable of continuing in its domination over the indigenous Palestinian uh, population, both because of resistance on the ground and because of growing global awareness about Israel's atrocities yeah. toward the Palestinian people. And over the last 10 years, we've seen a huge growth in this global Palestinian civil society-led movement for boycott, divestment, and sanctions yes. against Israel, against corporations that are profiting from Israel's military occupation. Uh, this is a call from within Palestinian civil society that is modeled on the successful global campaign to bring down apartheid in South Africa. 
And in fact, this movement is succeeding. It's yes. working to get billions of dollars of contracts stripped from corporations which are profiting from Israel's occupation. Israel has deemed this boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, or BDS for short, as a strategic threat. Uh, it finds itself increasingly isolated on the international stage because of this growing awareness. And I personally don't believe that these policies can last much longer in this day and age of instantaneous communication uh, that facilitates cross-border organizing yes. and so forth. Uh, so Israel really has to uh, untrap itself from this mentality that it can perpetually use force and domination and apartheid to control the indigenous majority population, reconcile with their existence, and transition to a true democracy where people have equal rights under the law, regardless of their nationality. What a concept. My goodness, democracy. We are keeping democracy alive with your help, dear listener. Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is uh, Josh Rubner of uh, and the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation. And I want to talk about what we can do. There was a briefing July 29th in Washington. Tell us about that. What was its purpose and what was accomplished? Because, I mean, let's face it, Washington has a lot to do with what happens in Israel and Palestine. Oh, absolutely. I mean, without the military and diplomatic support that we provide for Israel, there's no way the international community would allow Israel to get away with its actions. So it's definitely our responsibility as U.S. citizens to be concerned about the ways in which the United States is responsible for enabling Israel's oppression of the Palestinians. Uh, what we did uh, last month on Capitol Hill was for the one-year anniversary uh, of this attack on the Gaza Strip, we held a briefing for a congressional audience that featured Iman Mohammed, who's the Gaza Strip's first female photojournalist, and she uh, testified about how her uh, child was injured in a bombing. Fortunately, she survived and, and recovered. Uh, and she also showed the, the devastating pictures that she took throughout this attack. Uh, we also had uh, international lawyers from different Palestinian human rights organizations talking about how Israel's domestic procedures failed to hold itself accountable and how the international community needed to do so. So this is one uh, aspect of the work we try to do to educate members of Congress, Washington, D.C. policymakers about our policy uh, in order to change that policy uh, for the better. And people can get involved in our work uh, by going to our website, which is www.endtheoccupation.org. And we also do a lot of these BDS campaigns, these boycott, divestment, sanctions campaigns, uh, and people can get involved with those as well on our website. And there's also a, a letter that is going out to to uh, Secretary of State uh, John Kerry. You know, our members of Congress, people don't believe it, but they are responsive to public pressure. If they don't hear from the public, they think what they're doing is just fine. If If they don't feel pressure, they won't bother acting, let's face it. But we, you and I, people listening, have an opportunity and, frankly, I think a responsibility to push our members of Congress, to push Congress in general to remedy the impunity that Israel enjoys by sending a rather specific letter to Secretary of State John Kerry. Tell us about this, please. What does that letter urge, and how might people get involved with that? 
Sure, that's a letter that we drafted uh, that we're hoping members of Congress will, will send to the State Department uh, calling for exactly that, for accountability for Israel's actions in the Gaza Strip, calling for investigations into whether Israel violated the Arms Export Control Act, uh, as we talked about earlier, violated the Leahy Law through these attacks on Palestinian children, through the demolition of Palestinian homes, uh, etc. So you can go to our website, uh, and the occupation.org, uh, go to our section on Gaza uh, one year later, and you can get the text of that, you can bring it to the attention of your member of Congress, uh, and urge your members of Congress to send that letter in to John Kerry. And it absolutely does have an impact upon our decision makers. You know, we've been able, uh, fortunately, to coalesce uh, a, a certain degree of support for Palestinian rights within Congress. It's not a monumental tidal wave at this point, but for example, a few months ago, 19 members of Congress uh, sent John Kerry a letter expressing their concern about the way that Israel uh, detains Palestinian children. Uh, And in fact, Israel is the only country in the world that as a matter of principle and as a matter of policy tries minors, tries children in military court systems. Of course, this is applicable to Palestinian children, not to Israeli Jewish children living in the occupied West Bank uh, in East Jerusalem. Uh, And so these 19 members of Congress expressed their concern about Israel's uh, ongoing abuse of these Palestinian children. Uh, And so these types of things are are possible. Uh, Members of Congress do respond to constituent pressure, even if we are up against uh, lobbies and interest groups, you know, that are more well-funded than us. They still need to hear from us, uh, not to sound Pollyannish about what is a very broken uh, political system that we have, but members of Congress still are responsive to a degree, to constituent pressure. They absolutely are. And what about the power of APEC since the war on Gaza in the past year? I mean, they've always been tremendously powerful, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee. Do you perceive any change in their, what had seemed like absolute power over uh, Congress? American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee undoubtedly is a very, very strong interest group. They have an annual conference in Washington, D.C., where they bring roughly 10,000 people who then go to lobby their members of Congress for more military aid to Israel, for example. Uh, But they're not all-powerful, and they don't always get their way. And we're seeing that very clearly right now over the debate on the Iran nuclear deal, where it's not at all clear that despite the estimated $40 million that AIPAC is investing Mm. to defeat the Iran nuclear deal, that they'll be able to. And the fact that the public opinion is running overwhelmingly in support of the Iran nuclear deal will probably outweigh all of the efforts of AIPAC to try to kill the deal. So they don't always win. They've been trying to pass these anti-BDS resolutions in Congress. That hasn't been successful. They've been trying to get Israel into what's called the Visa Waiver Program, which basically allows for national visa-free entry into the United States in exchange for reciprocal treatment of U.S. citizens in their country. APAC's been trying to get them into this program while allowing for Israel to continue to discriminate against Palestinian Americans who are often denied uh, entry 
by Israel and often humiliated and interrogated Mm -hmm. for hours and hours uh, on end at Israel's airport. And we've been successful in blocking them from getting into that program up until now. So, yes, they're strong. Yes, they're powerful. But by, by no stretch of the imagination are they all powerful or controlling. Sometimes David beats Goliath. It does happen. Josh Rubner, thanks so much for being with us. Again, that website? www.endtheoccupation.org. Thanks very much for being with us. Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, Bert. First thing, the occupation started When Palestine was left brokenhearted Hands down, you won't believe the way they laid their wrath on her Six feet under is where they left us So bad, the way that they were killing us Too bad, we're not afraid to die when bombs fall from the sky Can't explain I never thought that we were gonna lose so bad They're all insane There's got to be Palestine will never 